the Accidental Engineer. Welcome all, Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today we are joined by Ben Weber, Distinguished Engineer at Zynga, the popular, or should I say mega popular uh, mobile gaming company. Uh, I came to find Ben many years ago, now about 10 years ago, as Ben was a PhD student at UC Santa Cruz in computer science and organized the first inaugural StarCraft AI competition. So for audience members who might not know StarCraft or might not know what an AI competition is, uh, Ben, do you mind giving like a, a 10,000 foot overview? Sure. Hello, everyone. Uh, StarCraft is a real-time strategy game, uh, typically competitive played between uh, two players, so a head-to-head -head match. Um, it's a game where you basically produce structures that unlock different units you can build. Uh, as well as different technologies you can research and upgrade, where you then have these two armies go battle head-to-head. -head. You have to scout the map to figure out where your opponent is. And it's a really competitive game uh, that was really popular in Korea uh, towards the end of 2000. Uh, and then on, it has been something that's been still thriving. Um, but the, the landscape of real-time strategy games has kind of dwindled over the past decade, so that's a whole other topic to cover. For sure, for sure. I, when when you started this tournament, I was a senior in college and was getting a minor in computer science and was seeking a tough problem to tackle as a student. And I submitted a, an algorithm or a, or a bot for the competition, and I don't even remember how I did, probably pretty poorly. But for audience that are curious about who participated and maybe what were some of the most winning approaches. Obviously, this tournament's been held uh, on a recurring basis since then, so there wasn't just one tournament and there was one approach to tackling the problem that is was the dominant one from year zero. Uh, but yeah, can you give Ben uh, uh, a little bit of the color on the backstory of who participated, how you attracted people to the competition, and uh, who won? Uh, yeah, so I guess to start, just to provide some commentary on just StarCraft competitions in general is, as I mentioned, it was hugely popular in Korea. There was professional leagues around it. So it was something that was played at a very high level. And what really got me interested in StarCraft as a kind of testbed for doing AI research was that there was a lot of examples of replays where you can actually build... Uh, machine learning algorithms based off of all these replays where you can look at the build orders that were applied of the set of operations they performed to build their structures and create their armies. And the idea was to basically be able to build a bot that uh, would be able to mimic a certain player or basically bootstrap its knowledge by feeding it hundreds or thousands of StarCraft replays. So there's a really interesting kind of a set of domain knowledge that players have developed. That can be through uh, websites, wikis, uh, where people have posted replays or just talked about knowledge and even set up some kind of unstructured text that you could potentially train an agent from. Um, but what happened was around 2009, I believe, is uh, people are starting to reverse engineer StarCraft. And it got to the point where you could actually have an API and send commands to the game at a unit level. Um, and actually, basically, set up an interface so that you can actually can control units, you can see which units are visible on the map, you can research upgrades. Basically, anything a player can do 
through the UI is something that you can do through this API. So I first found about this in 2009. And uh, I think one of the things I did that made this kind of popular is we set up a, an API so that you call a separate process um, over sockets initially, where I wrote a bot in Java, even though this uh, kind of approach was written in C, where you would inject another DLL into the StarCraft process which then exposed that API. So this unlocked all sorts of different approaches that teams can use. Um, and to your point, there was a variety of different bots um, in the first year where some teams wrote bots uh, directly in C uh, without doing this approach. Some used Java. Some people, I think, tried using languages like F Sharp or just, I don't know, Lisp at some point. But um, when I started the competition, we did four different types of tournaments to try to decompose the problem into kind of subsets of problems because there's a lot of different tasks to solve and you can have very tactical focused bots where you're looking at just engagements or small skirmishes between small armies um, where maybe the players have a similar number of uh, kind of melee units or ranged attack units um, and micromanagement where you're really uh, reacting second to second with these players and creating information is important. Um, and then we kind of scaled up the game to kind of partial games where you had a subset of structures. Um, there wasn't necessarily expansions available. And the idea was to have something kind of in between uh, the full game, which was basically what you would see in a competitive tournament environment between two professional players. Um, and that's the one that got the most attention uh, because it's kind of the one that's most similar to what you would see uh, in an actual arena. And uh, there was a variety of different approaches. I think for the first year, it was mostly fixed build orders where people would follow a fixed set of plans and really focused on um, just the execution of that specific plan versus any sort of metagaming where you'd respond to your opponent or try to kind of get into multi games with your opponent. Um, none of that really mattered whenever bots had pretty fixed strategies. So I think what you see now with AlphaStar, uh, which is Google's StarCraft bot for StarCraft II, um, which is the successor to the game uh, we were using, which was StarCraft Brood War, is that a lot of the focus was on just doing one strategy really well. And the team that took it the first year was Berkeley, where they basically uh, built a bot that got to kind of tier two tech and then was able to kind of overwhelm the opponent with flying units where you can basically come at them from tons of different angles and kind of uh, distract and kind of... Uh, take away the opponent's kind of attention. So it was kind of one all-in strategy where you basically get to tier two tech as fast as possible and then just commit to that. Um, it's something that works pretty well in terms of mid-level games, so it's not surprising that a strategy like this uh, did pretty well for the first year of the competition. So I know from researching it myself, and this is digging way deep in my memories from when I worked on this uh, and contributed my own uh, submission for the competition. I did not participate in the full gameplay tier of the competition, which like you describe, is definitely the hardest and mo most holistic uh, problem <laughs> domain to tackle. Uh, but uh, I understand that the a common approach to the to the to the hardest tier where you're playing the full game rather than a subset of the game is to take an agent-based approach where you uh, encode a model for prescribing 
solving one dimension of the game. For example, resource acquisition, so that you can pay to build buildings and pay to create attacking units or resource harvesting units. So creating specific agents for specific uh, problems uh, that you are optimizing to solve for. Uh, is, is that the approach that the UC Berkeley team took and that uh, in some sense the, the Google team has taken most recently with StarCraft II? Yeah, so the agent-based approach uh, was pretty common, and it's something that's been uh, discussed in some of the academic uh, literature that's been released since then, um, where the idea is to deco decompose the problem into smaller problems. So you can have an agent that's focused specifically on building structures and researching technology. You can have an agent that's focused on resource gathering and worker production so that you're optimizing uh, for resource collection. You can have a tactics manager that's responsible for the micromanagement and kind of formation-based uh, activity. So I think a lot of people do that just kind of out of necessity. Um, and it's something where that, that's been a pretty common theme. Uh, the challenge is you have units or structures that kind of overlap in responsibility. So a worker unit is primarily focused on collecting resources, but is also used for scouting, can also be used for defense, um, might be part of kind of your rollout where you're actually building structures offensively. So the, the challenge is that there's not really a clear uh, kind of distinction between these different agents, and that's where you need to have some sort of uh, cooperation across the different components. And people had a, a number of different approaches there. Um, but that was kind of a common pattern that we did see. In terms of AlphaStar, which is the DeepMind bot that basically was able to play at a professional level around last year, was focused around a reinforcement learning behavior where they did have kind of different action spaces. So the action space for structures and units was different than the space for telling units which way to train. But what was kind of interesting is they didn't have, I think, such defined kind of agents and interfaces, and instead was able to kind of represent this action space in a way where they could brute force it and come up with an agent that would learn micromanagement behaviors uh, just through trying different actions and learning different rewards. And it wasn't something where so much domain knowledge had to be explicitly encoded. So it's, in a way, much more powerful um, in terms of generalizing AI, uh, if you can build an agent that basically learns from rewards. But it just takes quite a bit of training to get there. So uh, the current competition organizer for StarCraft did kind of a, a look back on DeepMind's effort into this uh, kind of game agent and found this the amount of training is enormous. And just the carbon footprint from training a bot, doing reinforcement learning from scratch is, is substantial. Um, and where DeepMind will need to kind of look in the future is around techniques like transfer learning so that all that training you learn isn't lost when you make a minor tweak to the rules or the game gets an update. Um, and that's, I think, one of the really interesting areas for reinforcement learning and AI to explore. You mentioned one of the reasons that you're attracted to StarCraft as a canvas for AI problems being that there's a... Uh, format for encoding game replays, which it sounds like is a key element to 
training uh, training AIs on uh, what is good or successful behaviors or what are bad or failing behaviors. Um, how did how does one assemble a corpus of training data of these replays that can be uh, used? Like I'd imagine you need a fair number of these replays, and you they would need to be specific to the maybe map that the competition takes place on. Uh, I don't know if a replay from one map uh, between two different um, pairings of uh, StarCraft, uh, I forget what you call them, species, I think. Uh, races. Races, yeah. Uh, if, if, there's a, if there's, like you say, transfer uh, learning, I'm, I know I'm not, it's not the same type of transfer learning, but uh, can replays from one map type and race pairing be used to train a bot that's uh, competing on a map it hasn't uh, previously played on? Yeah, so to add some context there, typically professional players and even amateur players will have a specific build order or kind of opening strategy for the first structures and units to produce. And a lot of that's going to be based on what your opponent matchup is. Um, so basically you might use something more aggressive or something that focuses more on economic expansion um, based on the size of the map, based on the number of locations that your opponent has to scout to reach you. Um, if it's a large map, you can kind of uh, focus more on economy and then later focus on unit production. Uh, so maps are a huge factor in terms of that learning process. And that's something that I didn't really get to in terms of the, the agent that I was building for this as part of my dissertation research. But it's something that's incre incredibly important because different strategies are viable or or not given a lot of just the matchup at play, which is the two races that are playing as well as some attributes of the map, um, such as the number of potential spots to spawn, um, whether it's more island focused, whether there's an easy early expansion to take. So a lot of that factors in. Uh, some other attributes you'd wanna annotate a replay with would be whether it was just a kind of one-off match or whether it was a, a series of tournament because You'll, you'll see different strategies being taken by professional players, whether it's a series where they can take risk and kind of know that they're going to have a best of three or best of five to defeat a player. Um, so there's a lot of annotations of replays that would be useful. Um, you can at least get the map name from replay files, but often the name is kind of garbage. So the, the encoding used to save the name might be kind of problematic, especially when you have different languages and a game from 1998 where there's not necessarily Unicode support and some artifacts like that. Um, so to build a corpus of replays, I built a web scraper in Java and uh, searched certain sites that basically had collections of professional tournaments. So you could look at all these replays from years of tournaments from different star leagues, which is the professional StarCraft leagues. And I was able to collect, I think, a couple thousand replays to start kind of my first a machine learning project with StarCraft data. So there's that data collection challenge. I think uh, Google is working directly with Blizzard, which is a developer of StarCraft and StarCraft II. And I believe they were able to get access to a huge corpus of replays since StarCraft II requires all gameplay to be over the internet and not over local um, networks, uh, which meant that they can basically store millions of replays and use that as a kind of uh, 
training data set to start from. So in that way, it was, I think, a bit cleaner in terms of the data to work with. Um, but it's definitely useful to have these replays to kind of see the bot where um, there's a, diff a few different ways that replays can be used. You can basically mirror the build order, the kind of actions that are performed by it. Um, but there's also interesting ways of using replays for artificial intelligence methods like case-based reasoning where you can reason about what you think your opponent's going to do based on similar situations that you've seen from replays. So the agent I built as part of my dissertation work would actually try to forecast what the opponent would do in the future by looking at the current game situation, then retrieving a similar state from the replays, and then seeing what players did in that situation. So you can actually create this kind of forecasted game state. Um, you can do that for both yourself and your opponent as a way of determining how to respond in a game. So we, we covered a little bit about what were the approaches that people took in the competition and some of the some of the techniques available. What what took you away from academia? How how come you didn't uh, persist with research on game AI, especially in the domain of you know real time strategy games or games of imperfect information? Uh, how did you end up getting into gaming? So in terms of the competition, that was something where I kicked it off the first year. And it was part of this artificial intelligence and interactive digital entertainment conference. And typically, there will be different organizers for the different tracks or aspects of the conference every year. So the idea was to kind of kick it off to uh, another kind of university or team year over year to kind of keep it interesting, kind of see if there was changes that would want to be made year over year. Um, but in terms of competition, it was just a bit of work organizing in terms of testing out people's code, responding to emails, and kind of just the actual logistics of it. Um, and that was before we really um, had kind of a more automated environment for running games. So I had pretty much like three laptops set up just in my uh, studio apartment when I was running this. And uh, it was a pretty manual process. So that was just a kind of time commitment. So ultimately, I wanted to be able to hand that off and um, Dave Churchill, who's been running it since, has really done great work on automating kind of the tournament framework um, so that you basically have this ladder of bots that's just running constantly. So there's still logistics in terms of getting people submissions and making sure things are working correctly. But the actual tournament automation is really um, impressive versus kind of the, the laptops I had in my apartment years ago. So that's been interesting to see. In terms of ending up in the kind of game industry. Um, it was actually 2010 when I was running the competition when I was also interning at Electronic Arts. And that was something where I had an introduction through my advisor um, who basically made a connection. And I was kind of there as an intern in the fall of 2010, um, just seeing what I could do with the replay data from Madden NFL. So my advisor had mentioned like we had done this project with data mining StarCraft replays. And Michael John, who was my manager, was uh, interested in what we could do in the same space with Madden uh, NFL. So there was some sort of feature that was set up uh, to basically record replays with the intent that people could then go to a website and kind of see stats about their gameplay and kind of do a game summary and attributes like that. But I don't think that feature ever 
got produced, but we did have this large corpus of Madden uh, replays in a way. So we get to study which plays people are playing. You see people that kind of abuse certain plays over and over. You see the people that <clears throat> always uh, go on fourth down and never kick. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot we, you know, we're able to actually see players do in the wild that was just kind of guesses or intuition from before. So there was idea of what other games do people play. Um, we were able to kind of do a lot of interesting data science work uh, within the space before kind of data science was really a term that was common. Um, Electronic Arts was kind of pushing the frontier in this space with um, some of the tracking systems they were building out for their Star Wars MMO at the time, um, where there was a lot of telemetry devices being tracked during development of a game, uh, where they would then use it um, once the game was released to do kind of tuning of levels uh, and just understanding in-game economy events and things like that. So I had my first kind of professional experience in the industry um, as a graduate student interning in 2010. Um, and then once I completed my degree in 2012, um, I did an initial run at Moon interviewing for professorships, um, found a connection through Microsoft Research, and then ultimately ended up at Microsoft Studios where I was working with uh, the user research team as a more technical uh, analyst providing kind of tracking and visualizations for the team there. So it was something where I think I need a more broader message of kind of what I was trying to accomplish through using RTS games as an AI testbed and a kind of broader research message of kind of the types of problems I was trying to tackle and how methods like the case-based reasoning approaches I was using would translate to other domains. So looking back, I think just in my research statements and other materials, I was a bit too kind of a narrow focused on kind of this problem and ultimately Google is able to solve it down the road. But it was something where I, I think the actual application of game AI uh, for methods like what Google's developed is pretty narrow in terms of kind of commercial success. Um, so I was kind of interested in the broader environment of machine learning and training these models um, and continue to find games as a great environment to do so and was more interested, I think, in the broad um, kind of development of kind of data mining for games versus artificial intelligence for games. So that's kind of where I've ended up in industry since and have moved around to a few different positions before ultimately uh, ending up at Zynga. Yeah, what, what you're describing jives with what I vaguely know of gaming. I My career has not been in gaming per se, but my understanding is that the the job market for building the AIs that people might play against in a game are of lesser value to the core business model of a gaming company than maybe the data analytics or data analysis of what what do our customers playing the game experience? What uh, attributes of the game uh, make them engage with the game more and play it more and uh, maybe even spend money? Uh, so yeah, I, I totally get what I think you're hinting at, which is AIs in the, the building of AIs for games is... Uh, lesser component of the gaming business per se. 
but I one thing I'm curious about, and I also understand you're speaking to narrowly people in academia. If you want to succeed in academia, uh, you need to broaden your audience uh, to why your problem in particular might be of interest to other areas of research, I suppose, is a way of paraphrasing what you said. Correct me if I'm wrong. Feel free. <laughs> um, but also, uh, I suppose, uh, something I've thought about with gaming AIs and maybe the demand for them and why maybe a Google would uh, partner with a Blizzard uh, on StarCraft II bots is that there's there may well be applications outside of even industry like, who knows, defense, let's say, is that a topic that ever came up at at UC Santa Cruz, which doesn't seem like a hotbed of like sending graduate students to go work for uh, defense <laughs> contractors or the military or anything like that? But that's always what I've kind of imagined being one outlet for uh, AI research is defense and the military. Do you know of any people who go in that direction or if there's demand in that area? Yeah, it's an interesting topic. So one of uh, the committee members on my dissertation panel was from the Naval Research Lab. So I think it's not that this had a military focus as much as a lot of the methodologies and kind of topics um, I was exploring were ones that overlapped with uh, his kind of research and kind of uh, his collaborators' research. So it's something where you have an agent that's reasoning about goals if some sort of exception happens while you're working towards that goal, you need to replan and kind of respond. And there's this kind of reasoning framework that I kind of adopted in terms of how the StarCraft agent should go about planning and responding to these exceptions. Um, so that actually aligned well within that kind of framework. So it's something where there is a bit of, I think, overlap between just Department of Defense or other um, kind of funding sources. So. I was able to work on a grant with my advisor for the National Science Foundation. Um, but I think about your point about broadening research, once you take on a professorship and really build out a lab, it's it's something where you need to be able to support a broad um, set of kind of research questions that your your students want, would want to pursue um, rather than kind of being so narrowly focused on game AI. Um, one interesting topic that you would see a lot at some of these academic conferences is there's a bit of a divide or disconnect between kind of the academic game AI conferences versus uh, the commercial conferences like GDC, which is the Game Developers Conference that was held every year in San Francisco until COVID hit this year, like every other major conference. Um, but part of the reason for that divide is just the resources available. So on consoles like you know Xbox 360 or or Xbox One, where Halo 2 was a, a game that was really well received for this AI approach called Behavior Trees, was something where you know you're getting you know a few dozen bits of memory per unit on the screen for kind of the AI, and you can't do this whole planning process and then replan over and over and over and take all these resources away from what ultimately needs to go into rendering. Um, pathfinding and all sorts of different aspects. Um, I would say that's changed a bit um, as hardware's just improved over the years. 
Um, and also just this mad rush towards graphics facility isn't as crazy. And you have games that, you know, Stardew Valley that have great gameplay, but not necessarily like super high end graphics where you can play around with some of the CPU cycles for uh, different types of activities, potentially artificial intelligence. So there's this kind of divide between academia and, and industry for game AI. I think that divide is narrower when you look at it through this kind of data science lens of analyzing gameplay behavior and seeing kind of tuning games from that. So it's easier to meet in the middle when you're not worrying about the game runtime, but instead looking at data collected on servers where you can kind of do ad hoc or kind of offline analysis. So this segues into a good topic that we talk about a fair amount on the podcast, which is uh, just career advice in general uh, about like what kind of problem domains you think are really interesting or, or just even tactically for someone earlier in their career, like you were at one point, uh, what are, what are kind of interesting problems that people should be excited about and, and maybe, uh, <laughs> you, you are optimistic about, uh, as far as, uh, like, you know, job progression, job growth, like the demand out there for those jobs. Yeah. I mean, there's a number of different interesting topics there. I think job progression is really interesting. We can touch on that, um, a little later. I think there's interesting paths between kind of the route through management versus, uh, being an individual contributor where you're still a kind of hands-on. Uh, as you become more senior, but basically building influence. <clears throat> in terms of some general career advice for data scientists, um, the first thing is really finding an area that you're interested in and then playing around with data sets in that area. And if there aren't data sets that are available, seeing if you can build one yourself. So that's something I did with the StarCraft replays where I was able to build a corpus of replays by building a web scraper. Um, it wasn't the greatest set of technology, and it wasn't a huge collection of data. And the data I collected was kind of noisy. But just being able to kind of do something in that domain early on is a great way of kind of just getting kind of hands-on experience with some of the methods you're going to need to do kind of in the real world. So if you're working at one of these more mature kind of product focused organizations, there's going to be databases you can tap into with broad taxonomies of events that you can use to kind of find insights. But if you're working at a startup or kind of just a different kind of domain where it's not like a just mobile application where it's super easy to track, data sets tend to get pretty noisy. So at a startup I was at before joining Zynga, um, I was looking at trying to build models around projecting net worth uh, for households, which means you can look at public data sets like contributions to political campaigns. Um, and for affluent households that are at the kind of high end of net worth, you'll see that's a large portion of uh, a, a useful signal for finding households that are affluent or uh, just real estate databases. And ultimately, as part of that startup role, I built my own kind of Redfin or Zillow type estimate of a household because uh, it was something that we needed as input to the model. It wasn't necessarily as you know, robust or complex, um, but provided interesting kind of directional input to that. So 
I think an interesting theme is really don't think of data science so narrow in terms of working with clean data and kind of building these models that then the output will somehow be used uh, without worrying about the broader ecosystem. And I think that's been useful within my career is not having to kind of wait on other teams all the time when you can kind of go and try to do things end to end uh, or at least more of the kind of complete picture versus uh, just waiting on things to be kind of handed over. So that's that's something where there's been this kind of broader trend in terms of applied science, which is kind of at the intersection of data science and machine learning engineering, where data scientists are expected to do more of the, the work to get these predictive models into production and actually running and providing insights, maybe even connecting to real-time systems. Uh, that's been, I think, shaping the ecosystem a bit. It sounds like I could rephrase it as you're recommending people try to be full stack data scientists in a way. At least explore, like build some breadth before really, I think, specializing too much. So I, I know we've talked about this is one way to do that and get experience with cloud tooling and cloud providers like uh, AWS, Google Cloud, et cetera, is you, you've told me that you'd recommend people try, you know, creating an account with AWS or Google Cloud and playing around with them. Can can you share a little bit about what you might mean by playing around with them or, or uh, maybe a, a structured uh, uh, self-education somebody can give themselves about uh, the Ben Weber course on using these platforms for data science? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the most immediate thing you do if you wanted to follow my philosophy is just search for BG Weber on Medium, where I have a number of articles kind of showing some kind of hands-on examples with these platforms. Um, but my general recommendation to kind of students in data science is there are these cloud platforms that are used by any kind of large organization, whether that's Microsoft Azure, whether it's Google Cloud, uh, even smaller players like DigitalOcean, um, where that's typically what you're going to be using in your day-to-day -day job um, at a large organization. So you don't have to wait until you're working at a company to actually get experience with these platforms. And if you set up a personal account, you'll have much more access to the tools than what you would likely have within uh, the corporate structure where you might not have access to provision hardware, you'll just have you know credentials for the database. So it's good to have a broad view of what's available on these platforms before learning the limited set of access you have to when you join a company. Um, so each of these cloud platforms has free tier options. A lot of that is to give people just experience with the platform to determine whether it's kind of a nice ecosystem that they'd want to preserve pursue further. Um, and if you're working at a startup or even large companies, typically these cloud providers will provide some sort of credits to really do a kind of proof of concept or evaluate the platform to see if it's something that's something you really want to commit to and build on. Um, within kind of the more student version of this problem, there's free tier resources or Google Cloud platform. Uh, when I set up account, provided $300 in free credit. Uh, that expires after a year. So you can actually play around with quite a bit of services and get hands-on experience with some of the tools that are available within these platforms. So 
instead of focusing on just kind of the model building aspects of data science on using libraries like Pandas and Scikit-learn to build machine learning models, it's useful to build systems that host these. And that could be a serverless function that you set up. That could be something where you write a Flask application in Python, containerize it with Docker, and then host it with Kubernetes or whatever flavor of container management services there are on that platform. And there's even interesting small-scale players like Heroku, where you can kind of actually host Python applications. Um, and it's really useful when kind of building a portfolio to build a point to kind of data science applications that are live that you can actually look at and view um, versus these kind of standard like prediction sets where you can talk about results, but there's not really kind of a visualization component or a live component to it. Um, it's really useful to show that you can build these services that are live um, when building the portfolio. I think that becomes less important with experience, but I think when you're first starting out, if you're able to have like links on your resume that show live services or just um, like a shiny or dash application for evaluating a data set, it can be a really great way to show that you're really engaged in a certain domain or um, really interested in kind of delivering end to end on these products. So as a hiring manager, as a person who interviews candidates, uh, what would impress you in, in someone's portfolio, like specifically about a shiny app or a dash app or, or just a documented web API? Like what, what would, what would raise your eyebrow <laughs> in a good way? <laughs> I mean, I think if you're a junior coming in for your first role, it, it shows that you're interested in kind of the broader set of technology. So, um, if there's something that's live and it's an interesting data set, then I think that's what really catches the eye. Um, I'm not as interested in kind of these competitions like through Kaggle as much. It's it's useful to show that you can take prepared data sets and do tuning and hyperparameter optimization. Um, but it's it's also interesting if you're able to like provide a data set for those competitions or you're able to kind of solve something that wasn't asked for with the data and just find something else. Um, obviously visualization is a big aspect of data science to be able to communicate ideas well. So even just having interesting plots of data that are interactive, I think uh, showcases uh, the ability to kind of convey interesting insights. So, I mean, PowerPoint decks are great and all, but you know, it's it's not like the medium that has to be for for data science. And I, I focus on writing white papers in my current role. That was something I really learned at Twitch as a great way of actually advocating for ideas in kind of long form. And instead of having like slides with all these caveats, you just spilled out in terms of what your methodology is, um, and kind of can go into as much detail as necessary but also have kind of executive summaries that kind of call to action and provide a high level summaries for anyone that's really just skimming. Um, but the interactive websites interesting because I mean, it shows that you're actually interested in kind of running these services um, versus just providing kind of insights as a single deliverable. Makes sense. Makes sense. Well, awesome. I feel like we've covered a ton of ground. 
Uh, I want to thank you, Ben, for agreeing to come on and, and talk uh, a huge breadth of topics. Um, ben, thank you for coming on. Great. Thanks for uh, having me. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.